Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. I had planned on going straight to the interview episode today. It's the day before Thanksgiving and it probably won't get out until tomorrow or the next day, but I'm recording in this on the day before Thanksgiving, which in the United States is um, November 25th this year. Thanksgiving is a big national holiday in the United States. But I received an email from Barry in somewhere in England. And I looked him up in Google, and he's a uh, big ship captain. And he has an interesting background. But he's doing some work putting together a shipping registry or something along those lines. And he wrote me an email, and I almost deleted this email. And I'm going to give you a heads up. Unless you email me directly and put something in the subject line that says uh, related to the uh, MedSailor podcast, there's a high likelihood that if you just put something in there that makes no sense to me, it's going straight into my junk mail file and has a good chance of being deleted. But on a whim, I happened to read his email, and the subject matter was Makalinos. And that's spelled M-I-C-H-A-L-I-N-O-S. And I almost deleted it, but then I thought, hold on, that sounds like one of the Greek shipping families. And lo and behold, I opened it up and it said, Hi, I'm trying to compile a fleet list for the World Ship Society for for Mikalinos and Company in Greece to accompany the one I already have for Maritime Shipping and Trading Company, which Mikalinos took over in 1942. Can you tell me when the McCollinos family first entered ship owning? And and can you tell me the connection between McCollinos and Michaelos? With this information, I think I can compile a listing from Lloyd's register here. Finally, are the McCollinos family still directly involved in ship owning? Thanks, Barry. And he did send it using the contact form on the uh, website. Yeah, I did some... Google Analytics research on my website. Oh, just the other day. I looked at I look at the statistics once in a while. I don't look at it a lot. But when I look to where the patterns of listeners came from, the, the largest body of listeners from the United States, second largest from Great Britain. I think maybe the third was from Australia. And then the fourth was from Greece. And where everybody in the other countries tends to go straight to my podcast page. The ones in Greece go straight to my Greek shipping page. And so I guess there's a lot of interest in Greek shipping, but very not, and, and I found this when I was doing my research, there's really not much information on the web about Greek shippers. And I think they want to keep it that way. I don't think they like to have this information out there. So when I put my book together, this this book I printed up, and it's available on Amazon. It was really just my master's thesis 
as an adult, when I was in my 50s, I decided I was bored with life and I needed to do something to keep my mind active. So I applied to get in the University of Utah School of Geography and uh, get my master's degree. I was the oldest student there. I was older than a lot of the professors. And University of Utah Geography Department is known for its geographic information school and its remote sensing school. A lot of <laughs> a lot of uh, our government officials hire the people in the remote sensing. These are the spy satellites, basically, from the department because they know how to analyze remote sensed images. But I, I took, <laughs> I was, I had about a 10-year master's program. I was in no hurry to get out. And, and every quarter I'd come around and I'd have to take a certain number of hours to remain active as a student. And I pretty much took <laughs> about every course they offered up there for the master's program. Just because I don't mind taking classes, but I absolutely hate writing thesis. And when I looked around at the areas that I would have to write a thesis in, primarily it would be GIS or remote sensing. No, nothing really grabbed me. So I went to my instructor and I said, hey, listen, you know, I'm an older guy. I'm probably never going to work in the business. But the thing that interests me are the Greek shipping magnets, the Greek shipping industry. You know, I've been kicking around Greece on my sailboat for years and years and years. And I come across these villages where there's nothing there. But they're very wealthy villages because they've made their money in the Greek shipping industry. You know, when the Germans talk about the Greeks and why aren't the Greeks more productive, well, the, the geography of Greece does not lend itself to high productivity. They're dispersed through many islands. The islands are not really very much of the islands are not very suitable for farming. And they've done a pretty good job of building themselves a good economy in shipping. And this goes back, well, hundreds of years. But I found the Greek shipping industry really interesting. And I, and I approached one of my advisors and said, listen, can I just put together, it would be more of a geographical economic history thesis than anything else. And this is way out of the comfort level of the department. But they said, sure, we'll, we'll humor you. And <laughs> finally, I got an advisor that said, all right, Franz, just write me the abstract. Just, just put together the outline for it. And I would do that. And then a week later, he'd come back and say, okay, give me five pages on the first chapter. And I'd come back. And he basically took me by the hand. His name was Tom Kova. He's a professor up at the University of Utah. He took me by the hand and made me write the damn thing. So when I wrote it, I found it interesting. I, I did a good job. But one of my key... When I was doing my research, I came across a woman who had published a lot for academians about Greek shipping history. Her name was Galena Harlapsis. Well, Galena Harlapsis is a professor, and when I first met her, she was an associate professor at the Maritime History Department of the Ionian University in Corfu. Let me give you a little bit of her curriculum vitae. Professor Galina Harlafsis has graduated from the University of Athens and has completed her graduate studies at the universities of Cambridge and Oxford and St. Anthony between 1983 and 1988. She's presented, and, I'm, and now I'm paraphrasing, she's presented papers all over the world, and yet she was not even a full professor until just recently. If she had been in the United States, she would have been a professor a lot sooner. I think there's a little bit of uh, 
oh, gender bias, I think, in, in Greece. But anyway, I had made arrangements to meet with her when I visited Corfu, and she suggested I come around the corner to the northern coast of Corfu to a, a, a harbor called Cassiope. And I'd never been to this harbor before, and I pulled in and was able to give her a call, and she came down. The, she brought me two bottles of wine from her family vineyard. We sat through the evening, and we had a wonderful discussion. And she loaned me a book for my research, which really only had one copy out there that I know of, maybe a couple copies, but not very many. It was a big, hardbound book. It's called Ploto, P-L-O-T-O. And this is one of the few that's actually published in English. And she loaned it to me. She said I had to get it back to her. And I took that book and I used it in my research. And her book talks about the locations of the Greek shipping industry and traces the families at those locations back through history. Now, her student, Ionis Theotakis, who is a oh, I think an associate professor, wrote another book called Leadership in World Shipping, Greek Family Firms in International Business. And he traced the shipping industry by family, not by island or location, but by family from 1945 onward. So to, to answer your question, Barry, the Ionis Theotakis book, Leadership in World Shipping, does not even mention Michaelanos, the Michaelanos family. But it does mention the Michaelos family. But there does not seem to be any connection between the Michaelanos and the Michaelos. And, I, and it's, this is on page, I'm going to read this, and this is on page 234 of his book, Leadership and World Shipping. He says, the Michaelanos family, part 86, this important ship-owning family from Chios combined participation in trade and shipping in the first half of the 20th century. And then he refers to the book, Ploto, P-L-O-T-O, which I've already talked about. All three Michaelanos brothers, Constantinos, Leonidas, and Zanus, were leading merchants in timber and other products in Chios in the late 19th and early 20th century. Before the First World War, they invested in steamships, and Leonidas Michaelos participated in the Palios Company, becoming president of its board of directors, but he left prior to its bankruptcy. Constantinos Michaelanos married Lily Tachmatizi, the niece of the shipping magnate Michaelanos Tachmatizis, whose company was inherited by her brothers George and Ionius Tachmatizis. And after the death of his brother Leonidas, Constantinos Michaelos developed into an important ship owner of the interwar years operated five cargo vessels in 1925 and four on the eve of the Second World War. Konstantinos Michaelos served as the president of the Greek Shipowners Union in one of the most critical periods of history from 1938 until 1946. In the later years, he went to New York where he took delivery of two of the 100 Liberty ships bought by Greek shipowners with the guarantees of the Greek state, which, be which became the Costas Michaelos, and the Leonidas Michaelos, in addition to the offices, in addition to the offices of the group in Piraeus in London, or Piraeus. You know, I I always say Piraeus, but I know that's wrong. But anyway, I say Piraeus in London. He created the offices in New York, and by 1948, his companies were managing four cargo vessels of a combined capacity of 35,000 deadweight tons. 
After the death of Konstantinos Michaelos in 1951, the shipping activities of Michaelonis' house passed to the second generation. The sons of the third brother, Zanus Michaelos, and his wife, Calope Nikolos, Antonis and Leonidas Nikolos, and Antonis Z. Michaelos, continued in business with the widow of Konstantinos Michaelos from the Michaelos companies, where Leonidas Z. Michaelos operated from the offices of his father-in-law, Nikolos G. Levanos, Levanos' brother maritime company. Now, Levanos' family, Onassis married one of the Levanos' daughters. And Stavros, Levanos, and Aristotle Onassis were rivals in Greek shipping. That is a big story going back about the rivalry between the two, the two brothers-in-laws. Anyway, getting continuing on with this, this goes on for another page, and I'm just going to try to summarize for it. Uh, the vet last paragraph of this, the, the company kept going into the 1990s, operating a couple of ships, and at the end of the decade, the reins passed to the third generation, which continues the tradition of Michaelanos and Lovanos families through the female line. Leonidas and Mary Michaelos had two children, John, born in 1959 and died in 1978, who was killed in an accident, and Lucy, who married Andre Vandoros, born 1944. Since the late 1990s, Andre Vandoros has been in charge of the business, which continues the family shipping activities. Now, that probably wasn't of much interest to most of you, but I wanted to answer this question, and let's get on to the interview for today. I'm talking to Sarita Armstrong. Sarita's a long-term sailor and also an author of a, a galley book, a book on cooking, and it's called, what is it, Baggy Wrinkles? Baggy Wrinkles Cookbook. Baggy yes. Wrinkles Cookbooks. So tell me a little bit about yourself, Sarita. I read your bio on your website, and I've got a link to it in the show notes, but I thought it'd be better to get it right from your, right from your mouth. All right. Well, um, I started sailing when I was about... Um, well, I had a sort of midlife crisis, I suppose. And um, although I'd lived by the sea, I'd never actually been sailing. And I suddenly thought, what a wonderful thing to do, to live on a boat and go and visit all these wonderful places and take your home with you. And from that, I, I set out to um, learn about sailing. And because I was in a a business, uh, a holiday business. I really couldn't do anything during the summer. And um, the only thing I could do in the winter was a navigation course, which I found I absolutely loved. And all the sailing that I did was in really awful weather. <laughs> and um, I had some pretty bad experiences, but I kept going anyway. And uh, then I did, a, I did a dinghy sailing course, and I thought, well, really, if I want to go and live on a boat, I ought to, um, you know, do, do an ocean crossing or something. So it's a long story, but I, I sailed from South Africa to South America on a ferro-cement sailing boat. Wow. That was quite an experience. <laughs> and I think... Um, really two things 
basically I learned from that. One was that in sailing the best bit is really leaving harbour and coming into harbour and you know enjoying the places that you get to and the other thing really was that it was better to sail on your own than to have to have crew and have to be with other people that um, perhaps you didn't get on with. So I ended up buying a little catamaran, a 28-foot Prout, uh, Sirocco, and um, because I felt I could manage that on my own, you know. And with it, I had a bit of that sort of um, what they call the tricycle syndrome that uh, you know, three wheels are better than two. <laughs> so um, um, I bought that in Spain and I sailed across to Turkey, taking about two years over it and scaring myself to death a lot of the time, but also enjoying it immensely. Now, you were doing this by yourself, single handed sailing, is that right? Mainly by myself. I did have other people that came to stay as one does, but on the whole it was my boat and I sailed it myself, yes. That's quite an adventure. <laughs> well, I wasn't really very experienced and I think, uh, um, you know, sort of inexperienced folly, really. <laughs> but I learned as I went along. Where in Spain did you buy your boat? I bought it in a, a horrible little place called Almerimar. I don't know if you know it. Yes, I've been there. Uh -huh. Yes, very windy it was, and with a nasty sandbar into the harbour. So I couldn't, um, I couldn't do a lot of practice before I actually set off. Um, I think I went out one afternoon with some friends and raised the sail and lowered it and came back in and that was about it and um, then the first time I set off I funny story really but I had my ex-husband and his girlfriend with me because they decided to come and stay with me on my boat so um, the three of us set off in beautiful calm weather and in no time at all there was an absolute Hooli. And um, it was just horrendous. We had the most horrendous trip. And I remember thinking, if I ever get to land again, I shall never ever set, set foot on the water, is it? <laughs> if you know what I mean. But um, uh, when, you know, the next day, it was like, oh, well, where are we going today? <laughs> So I got over that. And um, it just got better and better, really. Now, I've looked at your website, and I've looked at the photographs on your website, and there's a couple photographs of the catamaran there, and they're going to be included mm -hmm. in, in my post. And then it looks to me like you eventually bought what looks like a Turkish gullet. Is that correct? Um, no. It's a, it's a Formosa 57. Ah, okay. 51, is it? It was 51 over deck, 57 overall. I'm not sure what they call it. But it was a Taiwan, we call it a Taiwan takeaway. 
And and when did you get that boat? Well, it's a funny story, really, but um, it I was just getting to the end of my trip across the Mediterranean on my little catamaran, and um, I sailed into Cos Harbour, and there was only one place vacant, so I went into it next to this rather smart Formosa charter boat, which was owned by Martin, who became the person I was sailing with and is now my husband. So that was the first Formosa that we sailed together. I, it didn't all happen as fast as that. I mean, it didn't get off one boat and onto the other. Um, I carried on for a couple of years, two or three years on my own boat, but we sort of met up in the winter and and went sailing in the winter together. And um, eventually, because he was doing charter work, which I really didn't want to get involved with, but um, because I just got away from all that with um, being in the restaurant business and the pub business in England. and But he eventually inveigled me into it. <laughs> now, was this uh, the Greek island of Kosh? Or the, the, no, the Turkish that, harbor of Kosh? Cause no, it, it was the Greek island of Kos. Okay, K-O-S, all right. Yes. It's just opposite Bodrum. Now, was this in the main marina, the downtown marina then? Is that the one you're talking about? In those days, everybody moored up in the little round, old original round harbor. Okay. okay. But I don't think anyone, private boats can't go in there anymore, can they? No, they, they still can. In fact, I was there a couple of years ago. But they've also got the big marina around the corner. Yes, yes. No, this was a long time ago now. And... Um, it was all very nice and very, um, very local, you know. So, tell me your scariest moments that you recall. <laughs> ah, well, I've had a few. I think that first day on my little catamaran was probably the scariest. But uh, another one comes to mind. Um, Martin and I had bought a little boat. Well, it wasn't so little. It was a, a Bruce Roberts mm -hmm. 42 um, in Malta. And we'd bought it just to renovate, really, and live on for a bit and then hopefully resell it and make a bit of a profit on it. Anyway, we were completely new to this boat. And we left Malta with it to sail to the Peloponnese. This was in the middle of winter. We always seem to be doing things in the middle of winter. And um, we had horrendous weather. Um, must have been the force eight or nine. And the engine on this boat packed up. So we would, anyway, I mean, you don't need it in that sort of weather. But um, we were going through the night and 
the waves coming down the the waves were coming down the Adriatic, and we were going across, so they were right on the side. And to to give you an idea of how strong it was, Martin had put an old generator that had come with this boat. He'd put that on the aft deck to um, work on as we went along. Silly idea, really. But um, a wave came and just took the whole thing away. The whole heavy, it was a really big, heavy generator, and it just washed the whole thing off the deck. <laughs> so that gives you an idea of the sort of waves that were coming down. Anyway, in the middle of the night, um, we only had the stay sail up, I think. In the middle of the night, uh, Martin went forward. Something happened and he went forward. He was clipped on and everything. And I was steering the boat. We had a sort of spray hood at the front with the cockpit. And I saw this enormous wave coming. And I shouted, I shouted to Martin and then ducked down behind the spray hood. And when I looked up, he was nowhere to be seen. And I thought, oh my God, he's gone over. And in that sort of weather, you know, what could I have done? Could I have turned the boat? Could I, I, I don't think I could ever have found him. But, you know, you would always have that thought. I should have tried. <laughs> anyway, I went forward, or at least got out of the cockpit, and there he was. So that was all right. What he'd done was throw himself down behind. We had a sort of solid dinghy on the deck. Mm -hmm. Seen the wave coming and thrown himself down behind the dinghy. So he was slightly, he'd been slightly protected from it. And he was perfectly all right. But I'd never been so pleased to see anyone in my life. So I think that was probably my, my scariest moment. Now, were you living on your boat um, 365 days a year at this point in time? Yes, we didn't have any other house. We, we lived together on our boats for about 25 years, I think. Yes. So you are, you are true long-term cruisers then? Yes, yes. We had um, three, four, four, well, we sailed on three Formosa 57s. And even when eventually we had a house in Turkey, but even then we still had a, a little westerly sailing boat that we used. So yes, and um, we're still here. We're on a barge in France at the moment. So you're not, you're you simply, but um, you know, coming and going. So are you did you say you are living on a barge in France right now? Not all the time, but uh, a lot of the time, yes. Okay. So you've been spending a lot of time cruising the French canals now. Um, yes, we've spent quite a bit of time, yes, doing that, yeah. Now, on, your, on, your, yeah, on, your, on your Formosa 57s, were you chartering those part of the time, or were you just living on those? Uh, we had to charter to earn a bit of a living. And that had been Martin's original idea with his first, his first boat, and we carried on from there. Mm. 
So even though you didn't want to get involved in, in chartering, you ended up becoming a, you know, basically taking people out on, on sailing adventures then. That's right, yes. <laughs> How was it, you know, a lot of people talk about ways that they can support themselves sailing, and one, and one of the common uh, ideas is exactly what you did. How was it um, dealing with the different personalities and how did you go about finding your customers in your charter business? Um, do you want to elaborate a little bit about that? Well, it, it varied really. Um, we had agents that found um, people for us and we advertised in English papers. We had a lot of Americans came. Um, English people, Italians, all sorts really. I, we both actually thoroughly enjoyed having people on the boat because you spend a lot of time on your own and I know a lot of charter people say, oh, oh we had these awful people and they're this, they did this and it was like that. And we, we found very, very few people were, were unpleasant or difficult in any way and most of the time it was an absolute pleasure to give them pleasure you know so for you it turned out to be as as a general rule a delightful experience then yeah it did yes certainly i would say that yes i mean you see before i left england i'd we had a, a restaurant we had a pub we had all sorts of things going on and i was kind of ah, you know, I, this, I've got to get out of this. And, um, and so I did. So I was really not looking to get back into that kind of environment. But um, as it happened, it all worked out very well. Okay. Now, I had some requests from listeners to talk to some, someone, pri primarily a woman they were interested in, about cooking on a boat. Right. Even though I tend to cook a lot on my boat, uh, I guess a lot of women end up cooking on their boats. And, and were you the, were you the chef as a general rule when when yes, you yes, I was the cook. <laughs> you were the cook. Okay. True bottle washer. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your cookbook. Right. Well, um, it's a sort of story as well as a cookbook because it's each chapter starts with a, a little story that isn't necessarily entirely true but coming from basic experiences that that I've had and it's all based around Captain Baggy Wrinkle who is actually not in the least bit baggy but a, a tall slim handsome man whose wife leaves him and he's left on his boat to learn to cook from scratch. So each chapter takes you on another little story of Captain Baggy Wrinkle as he crosses the Mediterranean and learns from very simple beginnings um, like how to make an omelette or how, how to, and he, he works it all out by himself because all these, these cookery books are too complicated for him and so he he starts from the beginning 
And he doesn't have a set of scales. He doesn't have a lot of things, but he makes do. And a lot of the book is about making do on a boat um, and what you can manage without. Um, so e each chapter is a different, you know, there's a chapter about doing things with eggs, a chapter about roast dinner, a chapter about what to do with the leftovers. Um, and there's a chapter on uh, preserves and uh, things to do with spices and, you know, all sorts. So, um, and then beside the recipes, I've got a, a column of tips and techniques. I should have called it tips and tricks, really, of um, how how to best do the things that the recipes are about. Or if the recipe's got um, a certain spice or herb or something in it, then I write a little bit about the uses of that particular herb and things like that. Because I think how to do things in the kitchen is just as important as reading a recipe. So in your years of experience on small boats, what do you sort of consider the essential cooking gear to have on a boat? On a, on a small boat, I mean, you know, every boat is different. Some small boats have big, quite big galleys and uh, some big boats have small galleys. It just depends really also what you're using the boat for. Are you going to be living on board all the time? Can you afford to go out to restaurants? A lot you know how much cooking are you going to do but the baggy wrinkle cookbook really is about people who are living on their boats and um, you know spending or really not going out a lot and um, so I would say well obviously you've got to have a sharp knife large sharp knife and a small sharp knife um, and not one of those serrated edge things that you can't, you've got to be able to resharpen it. You need a, at least one large saucepan and one small saucepan. I mean, this is absolute minimum. It depends, of course, whether you've got what your cooker on the boat is like. Have you got taking just two rings? Have you got an oven? Have you got a grill? Um, on my little catamaran, I just had two rings and a grill. And I think that was better than having the possibility of two rings and an oven. But if, if there's going to be more people on board, then I think an oven can be very, very useful, even on a boat. Because, you know, there's a lot of things you can prepare and put in the oven and carry on sailing, you know. <laughs> You don't, that's another thing, you can cook while you're going, if there are two of, the, two of you, one can be cooking and the other doing the sailing bit and uh, then you've got a nice meal when you get in. Um, but what else would I have? I'd have a, a mixing bowl, medium to large mixing bowl, a good chopping board that's the right size for your workspace. Um, a small balloon whisk, probably. Um, 
And then for the for your cupboard, you want a few basics like um, salt and pepper, cooking oil, some flour, some rice, some pasta, stock cubes, jar of mixed herbs as a basis. Um, never very keen on tinned food, but some food is good in tins, like sweet corn, tinned tomatoes, tinned beans. I mean the you know chickpea things. Okay. But um, basically, you know, you can you can find enough fresh food, fresh vegetables, not to have to worry too much with tinned peas and stuff like that. If you want to learn to sail, the first thing you need to do is learn the terminology. I've got an audio series of lessons, lessons for the ASA 101 exam, which is the first American Sailing Association certification. It's the basic keelboat certification. So I put together a series of audio lessons. I think they're over eight hours in length and maybe nine hours, eight to nine hours in length for the ASA exam number 101, which is the basic keelboat certification. Now, in addition to that, I also have audio lessons for the ASA 103 and the ASA 104. Now, if you want to do bareboat chartering, you need to get some sort of an international certification. And the one that's most common in the United States is the American Sailing Association certification, ASA 104. And that's the bareboat certification that you need to be able to charter a boat from most of the charter companies. Now, I cannot teach you to sail in an audio course, but I can prepare you for the written portion of the examination. And I try to make these lessons interesting by peppering the lessons with personal anecdotes of my experiences while sailing over the last 30 years. So, uh, if that's of interest to you, please go to the website, medsailor.com, check out the products that I have for sale, and if they're of interest to you, go ahead and buy them. If you download them through Gumroad, they will come as an MP3 files. Now, the last thing I want to encourage you to do is if you like these podcasts, tell your friends about them. And if you have a chance, go into the iTunes podcast directory or whatever podcast directory you use and write a positive review. All right, let's get back to the interview. Now, would you do your shopping on shore? Yes, yes. You can usually get fresh vegetables. Well, you know, I'm only talking about the Mediterranean. Right. Mm -hmm. It may be quite different in in the Caribbean or somewhere. I don't know. But, um, yeah, in the Mediterranean, you can always get a few vegetables. So let they me may ask... not always be to your liking, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking in the Greek islands, they're often, um, in the remoter islands, they can be pretty old and rubbishy, the vegetables. When you wintered, uh, would you tend to stay in one location for the entire winter, or would you move around uh, much in the Mediterranean during the winter months? I mean, I've sailed there in the summer months, you know, May to September. Uh, but the weather starts deteriorating rather quickly about the end of September. So you would live on your boat throughout the winters. Would you? Did you have a favorite wintering spot? Where did you end up going in the winters? Well, we rented in a in a variety of places, but we used to sail up to usually up to Christmas, 
And, you know, you can have lovely weather in October, certainly September, October. And as I say, you can, you can have lovely days. Um, you have to watch the weather, of course. And, uh, but we, we wintered in Tunisia a couple of times. Um, one winter we went through the Suez Canal and down into the Red Sea. Um, we wintered in Corfu, uh, Bodrum in Turkey, and Fethiye. That was a nice. That's a nice winterage place. Um, just depended where where we ended up. Let me ask you about when you went through the Suez Canal. How difficult was that in uh, in in transiting this in the Suez Canal? Because that's something I've never really thought of doing. <laughs> you have to have. I think it's probably much more complicated and more expensive nowadays. But um, you have to have, even in those days, you had to have an agent. And two, I think. And uh, it was it was fine. Yeah, it was fine. You had to have a pilot going through the canal. And oh, we we had a we had a funny one who was. They're always trying to get more and more money off you, you see. <laughs> and we, we had one, he burst into tears when we wouldn't pay him any more money. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think they can turn it on at will. So when no, you, when you it went... It was fun going down there, yeah. Okay. When you went down, did you, uh, did you go to a marina or were you anchoring then in the north of the Red Sea? Um, we we were anchoring quite a lot. Um, where did we go in? Our main idea of going down there was to turn up the Gulf of Aqaba and winter in Israel, in Aqaba. Okay. In Aqaba. Is that right? It right? Yes, I think so. But. Um, we found we could, you know, we were too big actually for the marina, so we came all the way back again and went into Akko in Israel for the winter. But, um, well, I mean, that was like January by the time we, we got back. You've written several other books as well. You've got The Odysseus Code, The Tau of yeah. the Tarot. The the Tower in the Tarot is a, that's a bit different from the sailing books. Um, that's a it's a different interest of mine, um, which is a you know about ancient traditions and the connection between cultures and that sort of thing. But the Odysseus Code, I would have thought, would be quite interesting to your your listeners because. Um, it's following this, the story of Homer's Odyssey, following it from a, a seafaring point of view. And whereas most people, um, they have an idea of how it was in, in ancient times and everything was very primitive and nobody could do very much and the boats were awful. What I, you know, for years I'd wanted to do this I looked through Homer's Odyssey and noted down the actual time
times that he says Odysseus sailed, where he sailed from, the direction of the wind, and how long it took him to reach his destination. And he gives all sorts of clues um, as to how the journey was. So I thought I, I had all these wonderful charts, paper charts and old charts, new charts, and um, um, you know, these charts that you get on, on the internet, and um, follow, followed it all the way through. And it was absolutely fascinating because I took the attitude that what home knew what he was talking about. And like if he said that um, Odysseus arrived at this island and you, you work it out and there's no island there, then you know what's happened. And a lot of the places I found I couldn't find them on the modern chart, but of course Homer never saw a modern chart. And in the there's a there was a book written, um, what was it called? The Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings, written by Charles Hapgood, many years ago, looking at all the old medieval maps that were taken from even older maps. And some of these maps show quite extraordinary um, things that relate to things as they are now underwater. And it would appear that a lot of them were drawn up at a time when there was a lower sea level. And I, I followed all, all this, the journey, and of course he goes on a very long journey, it's not just within the Mediterranean, and well, that's, that's the book. But I think Homer was looking back to a time before the eruption of Santorini, you know, in, I think it was about 1500 BC, the island of Santorini in the Mediterranean erupted, virtually blew apart. and. I think a lot of seafaring knowledge was lost at that time because prior to that, the Minoans and the Phoenicians were excellent sailors. And I, I think it's fairly well understood that the Phoenicians sailed out of the Mediterranean and down the coast of Africa. And I think my idea is that Homer was looking back to that time and taking a lot of his information from a time remembered in, in the oral stories because he was the first person to write down. He was just on the cusp of written stuff and the oral myths and legends. So I think he was taking information from a lot further back than his own time. And the Greeks at the time probably couldn't have sailed um, the distances that Homer talks about. So there you go. 
sounds like an interesting book. It sounds like a very interesting book, and I'll I'll link to your website, and it's also available in uh, in Amazon, as I as I recall. That's right. Yes, yes. It is. It it really is a very interesting book, and other people that have read it have said, you know, to start with, they think, oh, I think, you know, this is a bit of nonsense, and by the time they'd finished, that they were quite convinced. So. There you go. So is it written as a novel or is your analysis of, of uh, Homer's travels? It's simply an analysis of Homer's travels. It's, it's, not a, it's not a novel at all. No, no, it's quite a serious book. <laughs> okay. And uh, Baggy Wrinkle Cookbooks is sort of written like a novel, though. Is that yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. All right. So if I asked you, you, you've, you, when did you start sailing? How many, oh, I mean, what year did you get mm. your uh, catamaran? How long ago was that? That was in 1980, about 1982, 83. Mm. And still sailing now? <laughs> more or less. <laughs> A lot less of, rather than more. Less than more, okay. If... if um, you know, a lot of my listeners are either wannabe sailors or starting out sailors, or are, and there's a few that are, are long-term sailors as well. But if you're talking to a, a new sailor or somebody that's contemplating of, of going cruising, do you have any advice for them? Do it. <laughs> Just do <laughs> it, huh? Well, um, I think it's a lot easier now than it than it was in when I did it. I, th I think you've got so much information on everything, but um, uh, the charts that you get today, I don't think I could cope with them. Give me an old-fashioned paper chart any day. And even if you are, are going to navigate with your computer, take paper charts as well, you know, and don't always rely on your GPS just you know do some basic navigation classes and be able to look after yourself I think also to the things that I think the things that make might make one nervous about it are not knowing what you should do or what should happen in a, in a how would you cope in a certain event so there were two two other courses that I did before I bought my boat. One was a first aid course, and the other was, which I didn't actually complete because I had ear trouble, but a diving course. You know, there are times when you've got to be able to look at the bottom of your boat, and if you can do a simple diving course, or at least be able to dive with a mask and snorkel and hold your breath and that sort of thing, to just maybe get a rope off your propeller or um, things like that. Or, as I say, with the first aid course, if something happens to you, to at least be able to know what to do simply, rather than calling up the, <laughs> the helicopter. <laughs> Sarita, anything else that you'd like to cover before we call it an interview? Um... I think that's, I think we've covered a lot, haven't we? Um, I hope I've 
said enough about the cooking. Um, oh, I, let me ask you a quick question regarding cooking. Do you have a favorite recipe that you can relate to our listeners? What, to tell them how to make it? Yeah, something simple, something that they... I don't know. Well, um, I don't know. one thing I was going to say, if you can make pastry and make a white sauce and make an omelette, then you've opened up a whole range of cooking for yourself. But one of my favorite um, recipes is stuffed pancakes. And pancake batter is very easy to make. And you just need a little frying pan and you make your pancakes. And you can make the filling with anything that you've got left over from another meal. Like if you've got a bit of rice and a bit of sauce and a bit of, you know, chicken or something. Mix it all up together and roll it in a pancake. That's simple. That's pretty simple, yeah. And if you want a a little sauce over the top, you could, I mean, you could make a a cup of soup, pour it on, bit of cheese on top, and put it under the grill. (coughs) It's pretty straightforward. That's good. That's, That's the way I like to cook, straightforward. Okay. Thank you very much, Sarita. Good luck in your sailing, and uh, if you ever have a chance to talk to us about barging in Europe, be sure to give us a give me a give me an email, and we'll talk about that. Okay. Well, thank you for thank you for having me. Good sailing to all your listeners. It's been my pleasure. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye for now. Bye. Joe, you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you, every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You've made me very proud. I was just thinking, where we might be 10 years from now, you know? The introduction and exit quotes for this podcast were from the movie Risky Business, released in 1983 and written by Paul Brickman. The dialogue, which was used in order, were played by Curtis Armstrong, who in the movie played the character Miles Dalby, Nicholas Pryor, who in the movie played Joel's father, Mr. Goodson, and Tom Cruise, who was the main character who played the character of Joel Goodson.